fashion, join a procession, the truth and the beauty. Hello everyone and welcome back to Let's Talk Catholic with Father Scott Waller. And as we normally do, let's start with the prayer for canonization for Bishop Barrigan. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. O oh God, thank you for the life and holiness of your servant, Frederick Barrigan. I pray you will honour him by the title of saint. He dedicated himself completely to missionary activity, to make you known, loved and served by the people who you love. As a man of peace and love, Barriga brought peace and love wherever he travelled. Lord, grant venerable Bishop Barriga the grace of beatification. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. So, um, what we're doing here is a, a second part following up on the, the one we did on Catholic education last week. And this, um, we don't have Father Simon with us uh, today, but uh, we do have um, Mr. Matthew Jackson and my brother, Father Mark Lawler. So we'll just get them to remind us of a little bit about them and their um, experience in dealing with Catholic education. So... Matthew, over to you. Father Scott, it's wonderful to be back again to speak about this uh, important subject. Uh, for me, it rests close to my heart personally and professionally. Um, I'm the headmaster of a Catholic school, Catholic boarding school in France. And for the last 15 years, I've been involved in education and more latterly in Catholic education, uh, helping schools in the UK to... Uh, become better at what they're doing in delivering a faithful education to our young people, but also helping uh, schools internationally to found and to develop in the image of uh, the best in, in British education to transmit uh, a good uh, foundation, academic foundation, but also a good spiritual foundation. Um, really all of this tied into working for uh, the Times Education Supplement for five years uh, early on in my career, which gave me a very good overview of what is good and what is less good in okay. Catholic schools. And we're going to hear some of that. Yes, Father Mark? Well, uh, <clears throat> welcome back, as I, as, as I should say to you. Uh, I'm Father Scott's uh, older brother, and I've been a priest for more than 25 years. And through most of that time, I've been involved in education. But in the last few years, the last uh, 10 years, I've been a full-time chaplain and then co-founder of a Catholic boarding school because uh, of reasons that we will discuss. extrapolate from the... No, we, we should remind people, if they, if they haven't listened to the first part, you actually also trained as a religious... A religious educator. Well, apart from being a priest. Well, the first the, the diocese uh, when I first joined the diocese that I'm in, which is Leeds in the west, uh, the the uh, West Yorkshire, which is in, in the north of England. Uh, we, I was, I did a degree which was a teaching degree, uh, and then I went to to seminary and did a theology degree. So. Uh, so I, I do know about I train with other with other teachers, but I've never actually taught uh, except in except in the school that uh, the school that we founded. I didn't ever I was never a teacher except but, as a priest because I was a priest. Yes, but you have that that basis of, of understanding and that, and also um, you also you you studied for uh, 
Could people love Catholic trivia? You studied for a license, which means what? What? Why is that called that? So after you get the bachelor's of theology, if you go to a pontifical university, at the pontifical universities, there's a, you do a bachelor's degree, a uh, baccalaureate, as they call it in the in Europe. You do a bachelor's degree, like BA, and then you do a a master's. Or you can spend the master's is one a one year course the the and a license a licentiate is two years and a licentiate is meant to to train people to teach theology if you're doing theology or scripture if you're doing scripture whatever the subject is having a license in that uh, is to enable you to teach in Catholic uh, institutions. Yeah, literally, was wasn't it? You were given on a it's piece a of license. paper that was a license in the same way to go to a Catholic university. Yes, yeah. but in the old days, that's what a master's degree was. The master was the one who taught. So a master's degree from from the old British universities was a was a, a teaching degree. So and still is in a sense. Uh, so that's that's what that that is. Because most of us in the states, or many of us. We have master's degrees, That's, which is why one of the pontificals started doing master's degrees, is because we had to have four years yes. of theology as opposed to, uh, for most clergy, it's three years compulsory, isn't it? Something like that. I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm too long in the tooth to remember. Right. Okay. Anyway, so what we're going to talk about. So last last time we, we, we talked about um, the kind of the state of um, Catholic education, and many of you who have listened to that uh, will, will it'll rang, rang bells for you, or touched, touched you, because there's very similar problems that, um, at the time we had Father Simon Henry with us, um, he's not with us today, but how the problems that are experienced in Catholic education in the UK are very, very similar. Excuse me to the ones that we're experiencing in America. Um, I'm going to let now. Um, I'm going to let Matthew. Uh, well, basically, Matthew, tell us how you got involved in all this Catholic education business, because because your degree was not per se in that, was it? No. So, uh, a university undergraduate and then postgraduate for my master's degree. My focus was on politics, history, and economics. That was my focus. Um, and at a time when funding was tough, I was about to engage on a uh, a PhD in economic history, looking at various aspects of the British Treasury. And I, uh, through a think tank that I was involved in, I was introduced to somebody who uh, had a consultancy business working uh, with charities in the third sector, which I had some experience of. The third sector? The third sector in the UK describes not-for-profit. Okay. Uh, so I was involved uh, during my university years in various not-for-profit organizations, uh, both at startup, uh, but also as an advisor to various boards. Um, one very close to my heart from my university was the Atley Foundation, a friend of mine, Clement Atley, the uh, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom in the 1940s, uh, founder of what we now understand to be modern education and the NHS. Uh, NHS, translate NHS. The National Health Service, so free uh, to the point of delivery. Um, public medicine. Public medicine, indeed. <laughs> uh, part of the, the Atlee reforms after the Second World War. And so I was involved 
as a trustee of the Atley Foundation, uh, helping uh, people who had difficulties accessing uh, tertiary education to effectively pay for and promote uh, people who struggled financially in particular, but had the capability to go on to university, to access university. And so I met uh, a wonderful man who'd been a teacher himself and involved in an organization um, called the Company of Educators in the City of London, one of the old uh, livery institutions. Of... Um, so you're obviously going to have to explain, <laughs> explain that. Uh, founded in the deep Middle Ages. Uh, well, even the term liveried, what does that mean? Uh, is a, a uniform in which they wore yeah, to be the, recognized the uniform, yeah. in the court. So yeah. uh, this is the ancient guilds. Yeah, so when words. people were watching Queen Elizabeth II's or, uh, funeral or the coronation, mm-hmm. a lot of these the individuals wearing the tabards, these fancy aprons and things. With coats of arms on. That's a livery. They are liveried. Yes. They? Yes, right. So, so they represent different things, different functions. And the livery companies are a very specific thing in the United Kingdom, which is that the City of London sits outside, relatively, of the control of the monarch. And so the Lord Mayor of London, of the City of London, uh, has immediate authority for the square mile, as it is known, within those, mainly for reasons of taxation in the Middle Ages, the these uh, groups of guilds of workers representing uh, watchmakers or uh, candlestick makers, haberdashers, mm. drapers, they formed really to protect their own interests in terms of trade against taxation from the state. So these were all trade-oriented? All of them. Right, yeah. and people shouldn't confuse that with something like the Masons, because the Masons call themselves that, but they've never touched stone in their life. No, 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 no. Uh, this is one of the prerequisites to belong to a livery company, uh, is that you have a professional engagement and understanding right. of delivery to which you are to belong. And and are they they given a a charter by the Crown or something like that? Is that the... No, by the the City of London. Okay, right. Um, So although they they exist and there's an order of precedent, uh, the first that were founded being number one through to now, there are uh, just over a hundred and something or other of these different guilds, uh, the educators being a relatively new organization starting in the last 50 years or so uh, with an idea of representing people involved in education. Lots of livery companies, the ancient ones, had endowments that they started their own schools. To right, to. yes, because Britain had a lot of those little schools dotted around, beside factories, mills, and Paid for by the by nobility as well, if they so chose to do that, didn't they? That's true. So lots of money uh, historically in the Middle Ages as part of, of uh, the development of, of what they wanted to do to pass on education, okay. but more recently as uh, philanthropic activities. Good. Thank you. So to this man you met. So uh, I, I was introduced and brought on board really to help uh, develop with the school's practice that they had within this uh, organisation. <laughs> Uh, and worked along two inspirational head teachers from two of the leading independent schools here in the United Kingdom. That was back in in 2010, and they took me under their wing as my first mentors. Uh, wonderful people, and I then, over the next five years, had great exposure to uh, some of the best independent schools in the United Kingdom, Catholic and not, and also some uh, wonderful universities to assist them in developing. 
fundraising strategies and education policy. Okay. Probably we we need to say something about what type of schools are there. So when we're talking about schools, we are not talking about universities and colleges. In America, they tend they often say, "What school did you go to?" They mean what university or what college. So what type what types of schools are there? So, so last week we talked about Catholic schools. Scotland are paid for by the government, and England are partly paid for by the state, but paid for by a diocese. What other kinds of schools are there? So there there's several, and, and one of the problems maybe that we will develop when we're talking about this is that education has been a, a political hot potato passed around. Uh, when you get the change of government, then education often is something used as a political tool to either get more support or to fiddle around the edges and not really make much of a difference except to make a mess and confusion. Um, I think that's all schools in the United Kingdom have, have suffered from that. Uh, education in the United Kingdom is different. We spoke the difference between Scotland and England and Wales. The government in Westminster has control over education in England and Wales only. Um, and so funding to those schools, there are different types of schools. There are holy state schools, which were called comprehensive schools, um, that are funded by the state. They uh, follow the national curriculum and their purpose is from uh, the age of six up until uh, 16 compulsory education to educate young people uh, free of charge. That also exists, as we spoke, I think the last time Father Mark mentioned, uh, about Catholic schools being uh, voluntary aided. So there's part contribution from the government, part contribution from the diocese. Uh, there's also been over the, the last years, different moves towards um, giving more autonomy to schools. So we had a rise uh, just after uh, the new government in, in 2010 of the the, the Conservative government of 2010, we had a rise of uh, academies brought on board. This was to give greater freedom to individual organizations, either as a collective, so to share resources. So several schools would come together, still receiving funding from the government, but would come together uh, to uh, share their resources, teaching and financial. Um, but also Catholic schools uh, evolving uh, to, to come together as academies, really to promote uh, Catholic education because it's more and more difficult to appoint Catholic teachers, Catholic deputies and Catholic head teachers uh, when in the governing constitutions of Catholic schools it says that head teachers certainly must be Catholic. Uh, more and more schools now dropping the obligation for uh, vice principals or deputy heads to be Catholic as well. I'll just ask, um, in, in England and Wales, do they have uh, such thing as these vocational schools? Trade schools? Uh, they existed. Yeah. They dropped out of uh, prominence really in the 1970s, 1980s. With co comprehensive education. With the development that. Yeah. of comprehensive education. But they're coming back in a different form. So now we have uh, a BTEC is, is an equivalent to a, a GCSE. Those are the two diplomas at the age of 16 that you can study for and attain. Uh, to show that you have gone through a comprehensive, generally wide-ranging mm -hmm. education and you have a certain academic level before progressing on uh, beyond mandatory education. So I was going to ask it, because you said, talking about the, the more normalised school, there's a curriculum set by the government, mm -hmm. the implication was that some of these others don't have to follow that? 
to some extent. So within academies, you can specialize within schools that you want to, within independent schools, which are uh, we call public schools. So they're completely private, uh, paid for by fees or an endowment. Uh, so school fees from parents or an endowment from the foundation. Um, and they have a bit more flexibility when it comes to the national curriculum so that you don't have to deliver it in its entirety. And uh, you can also augment the curriculum. So although you teach um, what is prescribed by the government, there is an opportunity to go beyond the curriculum. Uh, and okay, and who, who are exam boards? Who accredits these? So there are several examination boards. Uh, it's not the government itself. So unlike in France, it's the Department of Education that examines all children in France. In the United Kingdom, in England and Wales, it's uh, private companies who have been given authority by the government to uh, to examine and to award qualifications on behalf of the government. There are the major ones. You look towards uh, Pearson at Excel, uh, AQA and Cambridge being the biggest, the three biggest in the world. Are they, are they overseen by the education department? Uh, yes and no. Okay. And, is uh, this, and also, is this... Common market? Do they bid? Not common market as an EU, but capitalists, do they bid for this? Uh, no, so they're, they're long-standing uh, partners of government in developing education. So the government department can't... Sort of a monopoly? <laughs> uh, yes. But um, what I would say is that the, the government, the Department of Education, doesn't have the capacity in itself to examine on such a broad scale that goes without outside of the scope of what the Department of Education can do in England and Wales. And so they work in collaboration with these organisations to, uh, so it's government policy to set the curriculum, but to deliver that programme and to deliver the curriculum rest then with the examining body. What about homeschooling? Is that permitted in the United States? It is. Um, it's because some European countries it's against the law, isn't it? Like Germany, Germany, I think. Yeah. Germany, Austria, France are moving now towards eliminating homeschooling. Um, in in England and Wales, it's it's permitted, but it's highly regulated. Uh, so the the accreditation and uh, proofs that you have to prove as a family to government uh, is quite stringent. I would say. There are opportunities within all of those major bodies. There are opportunities for uh, students to be homeschooled and to follow that program of study uh, and to pass or to take rather the examination as uh, an independent candidate. So the, there is that opportunity that you can do that. And there's also some flexibility um, for uh, recognition of overseas uh programs of study so as long as there's a diploma at the end that says there's a basic competence and this is checked by the government particularly in math science and english right. then beyond that the 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 curriculum is quite uh is tolerated as i understand it in america um post-covid or during covid but post-covid um homeschooling has has been rising but also because of the condition of public schools in certain places. Has, have you, if you're aware of that, because I know obviously you're in contact with other educators and, and uh, is that, has there been a rise of that in the UK? The... I think it started in the UK before COVID, way before. Really? Um, 
really arising from uh, new Labour government in the nineteen, the end of the nineteen nineties onwards, um, in order to address, in the first instance, in order to address uh, students who did not fit into mainstream education, usually because of behavioural issues. There were organisations that set themselves up to provide an online platform or a distance learning programme so that students could continue with their learning up until 16, but not necessarily in a traditional school setting. So there was already a precedent and a tolerance for distance learning of some description. It was also that uh, came out of really uh, educational policy way back in the 1970s with the development of the Open University and uh, an ability at the high level, at university level, to study from a distance that distilled down to secondary educational level. I think what uh, the COVID pandemic and the forced closure of schools has shown is that to some level, good and bad, uh, there has been an ability to continue to deliver a good level of education online. And so given where we are in terms of technology, uh, given where we are in terms of governments now more and more providing options and choices for the family to make decisions on education, um, so, for example, and to touch private education, um, the government in the in England and Wales allots from birth a certain amount of money per child to be educated. And the big discussion in the independent world, independent schools, is that the, that money allotted per child should be used to offset school fees. I believe that is a hot potato in north in the United States. Okay, <laughs> I believe that is a very that is a real major political thing just now mm. about um, you should be able to certain money should be allocated to your child, you should be able to take your child to the school of your choice yes. as opposed to having to go to the local public school, things like that mm. it's, a, it's a major thing Okay, so you in a kind of roundabout way that, that you couldn't foresee you ended up um, actively involved in, in assisting schools, seeing how schools were set up and things like that. And um, did you have a desire to to actually take the reins of an education facility? No. Um, my experience was always on the outside uh, in teaching. So through my university years, being involved in helping underprivileged children to learn, giving it additional tuition and support when I was studying, uh, then being involved in schools more closely as an advisor and supporter to schools, and then an, an eye-opening moment, I suppose, working with a, quite a big established school group in Kenya uh, for a, a long period of time. And, and that really got me thinking about what I was doing, that I was working at that time for a, a corporate organization in London, and it came to a realization that there was much more to do in education, that I was on the periphery of education, um, but had much more to offer, and in particular because of my faith, uh, much more to offer in the world of Catholic schools. Okay, so we'll hold that for a second. Right, turning to to Father Mark, who's very, very patiently sitting here. So, Father, you um, had uh, an extremely successful uh, parish, and uh, in uh, the Leeds diocese, and then. I don't know, trimming the fat or whatever, whatever you would call that. Um, the the parish the parish was uh, closed, and uh, uh, there was difficulty in finding uh, an assignment for you. Um, 
how did you end up in, as a chaplain in a boys' boarding school in, in France? Uh, well, I was 10 years uh, running a very small but very successful parish, and then the, uh, the diocese closed the parish, and I heard that a friend of mine was leaving his job as full-time chaplain to a, a friend, a boarding school, an English boarding school in France, Catholic one, obviously. Uh, and Father Simon had been invited to go to the school to give a to give a talk on the Order of Saint Lazarus that, that we were members of. But uh, which we are going to talk about. Yes, more. and he said, uh, "Why don't you come with me?" Because you know, we'll see. So I went there without any intention of, of taking over from the, the friend. But when I was there, I, I decided that uh, this looked interesting. So I, I took over from him as the chap, full-time chaplain at that school uh, in 2014, I think, 15. Uh, and I was there uh, until 2020. And I, unfortunately, I encouraged Matthew to come and join me. Oh, that's uh, why I paused yeah. him where he was. So, but in that, you were... You were Teaching as well as uh, religion, Catholic. yes, yeah, yes. Okay. Uh, it was a school of between twenty and forty, depending on the year. Uh, boys, all boys, uh, and was Catholic mass, compulsory mass every day, compulsory night prayers, etc. Uh, and Matthew came and was the vice principal there for two years. Right. So um, you've had a break now, Matthew. You managed to drink the last dregs of your water there. So quite a change. A huge change to move from the no, top. No, you do speak French fluently. Yeah. I'll continue off. I'll say it. Uh, but it was a huge change from uh, the corporate world, as seismic, I would say, as moving from uh, the monastery in Farnborough into London mm, when I did my yeah, university that, studies. That we talked about last week, yeah. Um, right. To move from central London, where I lived and where I worked, uh, to living in in rural France yeah. was a significant change, but one that that was uh, I would suggest more rewarding and more challenging than anything I'd experienced in my life. To see directly, and when we talk about why education, why Catholic education, to see the direct impact that you could have on shaping positively the the lives of, of young people in this. Yeah, so we'll go back to you, Father Mark, because obviously you must have. Some effect and um, talking Matthew into this. When you when you when you go, um, you saw what the potential of actually helping to mould these young men because it's single sex, it was boys, wasn't it? Was, it? Yeah. Um, how different is that from a chaplaincy in a in a school if you've got parish? Well, it's. It, Going back to something we spoke about in the first program, which was the idea that uh, the Catholic idea that, that parents are the first educators of their children, in a boarding school, of course, there are no parents because they've given us their children. We become the parents as well as the teachers, and so it, it is a very different thing than it is in a uh, when I was chaplain to a high school, because in a high school I would go in. Whereas in in the in the boarding school you're living with with uh, the pupils twenty four hours a day, uh, you get to know them better. It's a different relationship. It's not an educational relationship only, because they're living there. 
and when Matthew came, Matthew proved himself very quickly to be that he was waste, sort of waste. I felt he was wasting his talents being uh, being a simple uh, teacher and administrator. He wasn't even teaching very much. It was more it was more administration. And uh, Father Simon and I felt that uh, Matthew's talents would be better uh, employed being a headmaster running a school. And so Father Simon and I decided we would look into how to how to start a school. Okay. And so, so when you're in the, the, the original school, um, what was the potential that you saw that you felt could be taken another level that, that made you think we need to, we can do this and, and in a different way. Uh, well, a school, including our school, that we founded, uh, the school is always, as as we said earlier, is always going to be uh, marked by the people running it and by their agenda. And I'm not wishing to criticise the school we were at, except to say that the that we felt that it need we needed to do something different, uh, things to do things differently, uh, have a different emphasis. And the only way to do that was to to start our own school. But the, with that different emphasis, is what I'm trying to get at. Is was that like as we were saying last week? There has to be a balance between the academic and the. Well, the, one of the major things, as Matthew mentioned earlier, when we sat—I don't know if it was on this program, right, in last week's program—we we sat down and we we said, if we're going to do this, how are we going to do this? And as we were just making original plans, what do we need? And we decided that there were two two fundamentals without which it was not worth proceeding to the next page. The first was it had to be solidly and soundly orthodox Catholic. It had to be a Catholic school. And the second was it had to be a good school. There was no point in having a third-rate Catholic school because parents are not sending their children to the school just to be Catholic. They're sending because it's a Catholic school. So we wanted both parts of that to be excellent. We wanted the Catholic part to be excellent and we wanted the school part to be as excellent as we could make it. Now it's a non-selective school so you don't just take pupils who will do well in exams or whatever. You have to take pupils as they are. But uh, actually, uh, this is the second time this has come up. Last week, Matthew mentioned that selective. Non-selective, yes. yes. I'm curious about this. Uh, so, is it a bit like... Um, Certain universities um, only want people who are going to pass exams and not willing to. Is that is that the kind of thing? Because you, you're the you're the, if, if I if I'm married, got a boy, you're my first port of contact, Martin, right? Yes. So, um, are you what what are you asking? What am I look? So first of all, what am I? What generally are parents looking for when they're reaching out to you? I think that parents think that they want a, uh, a Catholic school that em that educates the fundamentals of the faith. Okay, so they're not looking for a junior seminary. No, and uh, they're completely different. They're looking for the foundation in the faith. What are the tools that my child can be equipped with to ensure? And this is one thing that I spoke with. We had a very and have a very successful program particularly with six formers, uh, those boys uh, preparing for university, 
uh, the Chestertonian club that I founded way back in 2018 uh, to discuss elements of G.K. Chesterton and his philosophy uh, and understanding of the faith, but to have a discussion of if you have the tools as a young person that you can fall back on, then surely when you make big decisions in your life, when you move on from the protection of your family or from the protection of a very peculiar environment of a boarding school, that you can remain Catholic and make good, moral, sound decisions in your life uh, founded on the faith. And that's critical. And I think that puts really uh, a big stamp on what is Catholic education. Have most of these parents tried other schools and found them to be disappointing? or It can be. I think that the motivations for parents to send their children, in my experience, to boarding school come in uh, very, very different ways. There's, it sounds perhaps cliche, but not one child is similar, and the motivations are... No, it's exactly what that, 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 I would say that's the answer people want to hear. Yeah. They don't want cookie-cutter <laughs> approach. Right. right. No, and so what we deliver and what my engagement with parents to discuss is really to find out their motivations and to find out where their child is. When you talk about non-selective, that is an historical principle, I would suggest, from uh, mid-20th century uh, educational approach in the United Kingdom, particularly with private schools, independent schools, uh, for uh, a streamlining, for the pushing of the elite to one side to be destined for great things in state. And so often, uh, based on academic or family, uh, reasons you would be able to enter into a certain school or not. So you can get a scholarship to go to a certain private school because you're past some of your top two percentile or something. Oh, your grandfather went there. Right, right. But the decision for St. Peter's when we discussed it, and there was an option for this, and to some extent there is a uh, uh, at the upper end of the school preparing for university, there has to be a level of discernment as to academic capabilities of the, the student to support them in what is best for them. But our decision was to make it non-academically selective. The selection process that we have is based on a conversation with parents. So what are your motivations for Catholic education? What is the engagement of their child uh, concerning the Catholic faith? Their suitability. This is one of the things that we did uh, put our mark on really was about suitability for boarding. Boarding school isn't for everybody. It shouldn't be a place where children with with highly uh, challenging personal or academic situations should be placed. Uh, that there is an element of, of a family life that you have to create naturally within a boarding school. And not everybody gets on in a family, but to, uh, to accept everybody into a boarding school may make it unsafe. Uh, but it's certainly unwise when you're trying to uh, foster a culture of faith, uh, a, a culture of brotherhood, uh, a culture of self-respect. Mm. Okay, so um, I guess we should touch upon this before I start asking about mottos and names and stuff like that. Why France? Because clearly you all know a lot about what about education in England, its pitfalls. Matthew, you clearly had, had good good connections here in the United, United Kingdom. So, why France? Well, at the risk of uh, of being uh, cheap, <laughs> we we could not have afforded. We had to we had to buy premises. We could not have afforded to buy anything in the United Kingdom. 
France has a population the same size as Britain, but is about three, four times as large. Mm. We were able to find a, a fabulously suitable building at probably, uh, I don't know, a tenth or something of what it would have cost us to buy the similar building in England. Um, so our decision, and we also found a very beautiful site that was also very, very Catholic. We, want, we, were, we were looking for... Uh, some kind of Catholic touchstone as well. And we thought it's Providence came into it as well. We, we decided we would call our school St. Peter's when we first thought about it because you want it to, as we say in England, uh, to, you know, you want to know what, it's, what it says on the tin. If it says on the tin at St. Peter's, then you'll know it's a Catholic school. So we thought that, that would work. And then we found uh, in, in our searches for suitable properties, we found a wonderful um, ex-convent, which had been a nursing home for 60 years, but was built 200 years ago uh, in a place called Saint-Pierre-de-Maille, a place called St. Peter's. And we thought it was a bit providential. Also, this building, a 200-year-old um, huge convent come nursing home, had been founded and built by two saints, by St. André-Hubert Fournay, who had been the parish priest of Saint-Pierre, and St. Elizabeth Bichet des Arges, who founded the the Daughters of the Cross, the Field de la Croix, just after the French Revolution. And so the, it just looked like it was that was the place we should do this because we had a place that was uniquely Catholic, that had a history, and a history of struggle, because when they built their when they built their convent, when they started their religious order. It was just after the French Revolution. It was a time of great turmoil in French society. And yet they managed to, to Christianize that part of, of France. So in a way, it was by accident. And in a way, we'd, we'd rather say it was by providence that we ended up in France. We could have ended up in, in Germany. Okay, this would know. probably be a good time for either one of you or both of you to talk about the state of the church in France. It's. Uh, I'll take this because it's, I think it's easier for me as a layperson yeah. to speak about, um, and I think that uh, France, being the oldest daughter of the Church, it's historical name, yeah, is in ruins. We are incredibly lucky and fortified in the faith, and this is one of the things that we do for the boys each month to go out and participate in the mass at the wonderful uh, Abbey of Fongombo, which is only 10 minutes drive away from, from the college, and, and they're a, a daughter house in a foundation at the first part of the 20th century from Solem, such rich history and monasticism. And actually, I believe, um, Cold Creek in Tulsa, which is the largest Benedictine community, Clear Creek, rather, um, in the States now, I think. It's a foundation from them. Foundations from Fongamu, yeah, yes. I think so. Uh, so the, the numbers, in, you certainly said a uh, wonderful potted history very, very quickly of Fongamu is yeah. that in the 1940s they took over a uh, an old ruined abbey and rebuilt it effectively. There were so many vocations after the Second World War to Solem that they could start this foundation in Fongamu. And just as the success of Solem had happened in Fongamu, similarly, that happened as well. So they had this boost of of vocations. And Salem is in southern France. Uh, Salem is it's it's further up towards England anyway. Oh, is it? Okay. Right. 
but uh, the in the 1980s, after lots of things had happened within the church and within society, uh, Fongombo made a dedication to the traditional form of monastic life and to the traditional form of the mass. So the the monastic life that they follow is uh, pre Vatican II in lots of its uh, in lots of its practice. They're completely self sufficient, self sustained. They don't rely upon uh, society for anything. In that they have their own vegetables, they have their own uh, cattle for meat. They use the beautiful uh, Creuse River, which runs by the monastery, for energy and for fishing. Uh, so uh, they're completely independent, and that attracted lots of people to their to their their monastery. And so the boom in vocations at the end of the 1980s, early 1990s, meant that they could do these foundations in the US. No. It's extremely important that they are independent because of the nature of how France, France governs things. I mean, it's fair to say France is an extremely secular. You know, Americans listen to this are used to the whole separation of church and state, but actually the state is aggressive, can be aggressively anti-faith, can't it? It can, and it's proved that over its history. Well, in, in 1905, the state just took everything that belonged to the Catholic Church, buildings, convents, everything, took it all. And they had they did this after the, ref, the, the revolution as well. That's twice now that the French state has just stolen everything that belonged to the church. And if you take, for example, the buildings that we have, we bought, they were taken by the state because they belonged to the sisters, along with the chapel opposite where St. Henri de Fournay had started. And good people, good local wealthy people, had to buy them back in, in 1905 and give them back to the, to the respective uh, congregations. So the church in France calls itself a uh, secular uh, republic. What they really mean is, not everyone, of course, not every French person, obviously, but the state is, is very much against any religious... Uh, outpourings and they don't want processions they don't want and it's so it's been that's been a difficulty maybe maybe uh, france is not the best place to start a religious foundation but uh the people are very warm we've we've had a wonderful welcome in saint pierre we we really feel that that, that it was providential that we went there go on uh, just to return to, to the point of the, the question of saying, what is the church like in France? So we have these wonderful uh, pockets of great faith, but the the majority of France, uh, by lots of different reasons, is now a desolate wasteland, really, of the faith. Yeah, that, that yeah I was, what I was just about to ask was, um, do you have, you have, where are these the rel relics of these two saints, these founders? They're... In the next door village, uh, there was a, an abandoned monastery there. And 200 years ago, the Father St. Andrew Bell and St. Elizabeth and, uh, and the nuns who were living in that, uh, where we are, in our house, they walked the, I think it's only eight kilometers, to this abandoned uh, monastery in the next village. And they basically took it over. And that's now the mother house. And under the under the altars, side altars in in the in the big Gothic chapel, are, are the uh, the 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 bodies of Saint uh, Elizabeth, 
and sit down. Okay, so the reason why I asked is a couple of things, just to try and get the flavour of the France that you live in. Um, if you wanted to organise yourselves or members of your village, and the boys, and you want to do a pilgrimage walk to venerate the relics of those saints, that's against the law. Uh, if you call it, if you call it a pilgrimage, no, I wouldn't think it would be. But it be, it would be a, you, just. It's not easy to to. For example, in, in the previous school that, that we were in, I, th- I don't know if maybe Matthew wasn't there at the time. Uh, one Corpus Christi, uh, we used to process Corpus Christi procession with the boys around the the courtyard, and I thought one day that outside the gates, the back gates of this school, there was an altar that had been used for this for centuries. And I said, well, I thought, well, why don't we just do it? So we did it. It's a stone permanent altar. Yes, so we did it without any asking anyone. And afterwards, there there were not complaints, but there there was a warning that that we needed permission to do such a, to have a religious procession outside of our gates. So, whereas I don't think that would happen in in England, was sitting at the moment in, in Father Simon's parish. I think if he wanted to have a little procession like that, uh, okay, it's a main road, so you wouldn't be able to do that. But on a side road, I don't think you would anyone would bother. And this is a this is in many ways a more secular country, England than than France. The people are, there are crosses everywhere, and there are, but people are just not as attuned to. Oh, I, I would say it's one of the, the sadnesses when when I went to the Diocese of Gaelic and first parish I was in, I suggested that we have a. Corpus Christi procession and people said they'd never seen it before so we did it in the other parish and people had said they'd never seen that before and so everywhere I go now we do them and so there's the other priest that was with Father John Miscavige but people haven't seen them haven't seen processions but whereas we we know so France being one Scotland to a certain extent when we were growing up um, you weren't allowed to have processions the government was watching you to let you have processions now, but also, um, the relics are in. It, it's it's in the hands of the the Sisters of the Cross, is it? Yes, the, the congregation. Oh, yeah. Now, so I have this question as well, just to kind of give people a flavour of of this. Um, you have nuns in your village. We have nuns who live next door because when they sold the property to us, they kept one of one building and there are three nuns living okay. in it. Is there mass daily in the parish? No, there's there isn't mass weekly in the parish. The the huge parish church that was Saint Andre Ubel's parish, uh, they have mass I think once a month. So these nuns the the parish priest has I think eighteen churches. I was I was gonna to get to that. Eighteen So these nuns, are they coming daily to Mass in the school? Uh, no, we're not allowed to have uh, outsiders come to the school. Okay, and that's got to do with the French government? No, that's got to do with the kind of the liberal nature of... We were seen as being very, very traditional. Um, uh, and, well, the mother superior of, of the nuns is, is an Argentinian. That's all we need to say about that. <laughs> And the, the the diocese allowed us to have uh, the sacraments, but they're only for our community, so we're not allowed to let uh, the locals come into Mass, which is a great shame, but that's for the diocese, that we don't object to that, that it's for the bishop to make to make such decisions. It's not for us. Sure. 
And we have always assumed that the reason the bishop made those rules was because he knew that if you don't have mass every week in a parish because you've amalgamated the parishes, if you start allowing a little mass there to become, then then it would become divisive in the parish. That's the way we've always interpreted. We haven't interpreted his actions as an attack on us, but as a, a, a something he thought would, would be about helping to build up the parish because we're not part of the parish so we've never we've never seen that as an attack on us uh, that we're not allowed to have people but we we've simply this is part of his management of his diocese and so we have no objection to it even though it's a shame but we have no objection okay so you sort of quickly mentioned something i was going to to bring up um most of the listeners here know that i i was with a, a before i went to Gaylord, i was just a a diocese in the southern south of France, and every parish in that diocese, which was the amalgamation of two dioceses, every parish had at least one or two priests. But that is not no. the story in France. That's certainly not the story where we are. It's, it, I believe it's, it's one, worse. one priest on on average has seven churches. Yeah. Well, where we are, which is the Archdiocese of Poitiers, which is well, St. Hilary of Poitiers. I, 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 yes, I will get to that. Yes. Uh, the, the, it's quite, it, it's big. It's a big diocese. Not big by American standards, but big for a, for a, for a British diocese, it's a big diocese. A lot of it's quite rural. Uh, the parish priest of, of Saint-Pierre is also, the, it, the. obviously it's not called Saint-Pierre anymore, it's an amalgamated, it's called the, the parish of Saint-André-Hubert-Fournay, named after the saint. And uh, he has 25 churches in 18 parishes. So some parishes have a couple of churches. Like our own parish has two churches. Uh, St. Pierre has two churches, mm-hmm. um, both of which St. Henri Hubert was was, uh, was parish priest of at different times. Do you both know this? The, the, uh, the no, uh, the, no, we don't. Well, I've never met him. Have you, have you met him? Uh, once. He's relatively new, so uh, there. Just before we arrived in 2020, there was a priest who was, uh, I think, quite sensitive to uh, country life. He got involved in the hunt and was yeah. involved in the traditions yeah. of the uh, of the parish. And then uh, a new priest was appointed who uh, was from the the centre of the the diocese. He was involved with the. Uh, with the bishop there, uh, and was brought in to to support and to look after and to build up the parish. And then just recently, he's been reassigned for studies, and a new priest has arrived. I think one of the issues is that the the priest has no real uh, awareness uh, of rural parish life, which is very very different. Uh, I don't know what the equivalent would be in America, but certainly if we compare it to the United Kingdom, we would say that the parish priest now. Uh, or, or rather, village life now in France is probably at least twenty-five or thirty years, where the UK was. Uh, so really? okay. the, the values are very, very different. The way of life is very, very different, um, and so the expectations on the church and on the role of the priest is is very different as well. But out in, in the if you're not, so the nuns that they live next door to you have a nursing home. Right. Yes, that's what they they make their money really doing yeah. that. So if someone is near death, they they wouldn't approach you to give last right? Well, they never have. <laughs> right. Uh, it, we, so, so how did they? Cap the, you know, 
you're in a traditionally Catholic part of France, right? So how are the 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 people being fed? Do they have to get in their car and drive to wherever the mass is going to happen? Is that Regardless it? of age, yes. I think that the Murrayband really um, I have a lots of conversations since we came to the village with ordinary villagers. And at the beginning, in the first years, I think it's correct to say that the vast majority of practicing Catholics in France, you have this thing of French people saying I'm Catholic, but not practicing, um, which does mean that they are culturally Catholic, mm. but just don't attend mass or receive the sacraments, which sounds for, for British ears and maybe for American ears is, is very peculiar. No, that's not, not uncommon in um in America to come up with people who would say they're Catholic but they haven't been to Mass for a long, long time. Yeah. So, Until they die, then they watch <laughs> you know, Mass and the whole bit. In fact, actually, until they come ill, then they want the priest to drop everything and go and anoint them and things. So. The, in, the, in the village, the, these people are are crying out for to be fed. Yes. And it's not just our village, it's in the neighbouring villages. We speak to the neighbouring mayors. It's, there's an overwhelming sense of Catholic identity, especially when it comes to these people live off the land. They're, they're uh, farmers, the majority of them. Mm -hmm. And so things like the seasons mm -hmm. and the faith are very, very important. Just before we came uh, to, to the UK, I'm, I'm here for a quick visit to my family. Um, we celebrated the Feast of St. Cecilia because music is such an important part of village life. The the local battery fanfare, which is a, a uh, mainly brass instruments, uh, trumpets and hunting horns and things, um, they celebrate with a big affair, St. Cecilia. And so uh, it was an impossibility last year for the priest to provide mass because he was uh, saying mass at the other extent of the, the parish. And so Father Mark celebrated mass and the boys served and we provided that for the villagers and welcomed them there extraordinarily because we were asked by that association. And by the, the, by the priest. We would never do things like that without yes. permission. Right. Uh, and then this year there was a neighbouring priest came for exactly the same reason. The priest of the parish wasn't available. And so because they were wanted mass for both practising and non-Catholic, non-practising people, uh, because it was important, they brought in a priest from uh, further away the, an administrative centre to say mass for them. We also have coming up the, the Feast of St. Barbara, which is the patron of uh, uh, firefighters. And so with a big culture in a rural area of volunteer firefighters, uh, they, they hold these big feasts, big Catholic feasts at the heart of the life, the liturgical yeah. life of the village, in fact, yeah. exists. And it's still called these different names that are Catholic. And yet there is no presence. There is no presence, and, and the, the small communities, the village is only 900 people, these small communities are left with nothing. I think that in um, in Italy, uh, it was almost as if after the debacle of what happened in the 60s into the 70s, priests felt it was beneath them to be involved in processions and things like that, but the faithful kept them alive. So if you come along as a priest and you are even remotely willing to just help the people, encourage the people. But in some countries, most of our countries, whether it be the States or here, the, the, the priests aggressively stopped people from processing the statues of Our Lady and things like that. Um, but, but there's an instinct of re religiosity in human beings and they, they like that kind of thing. And 
I certainly are. I have an impression of farmers now, and I definitely would concur with what you said, that um, they, they have an awareness of of the change of the seasons, of the, the liturgical year, when it's explained to them, fits more some something in there. In there. So as we come to the end of this programme, um, the next programme that um, I'm going to do will, will involve what happened as you embarked upon this and then the horror of, so we need to talk about, because everybody has to talk about it, the horror of COVID, and then how the, the, the hopefully the future is going to go and the, the order of, because uh, you're all chaplains or knights of the order of St. Lazarus and how um, that as a worldwide group of Catholic knights is now involved with this desire which shows it's not just something that you three thought. It's actually something that speaks to the heart of, of so many uh, people. Um, I'm sure people will find it uh, fascinating. Um, uh, we'll be able to give out the relevant ways to um, to contact. If, if you want to give donations and things, we'll do this in the, the, the next programme. And if you want to have either uh, Father Mark come to do parish missions or um, Matthew come to give give talks, um, if you listen to this in Canada, he actually probably can speak Quebecois as well if you if you want to. So um, we'll finish this as we um, often uh, or always try to do, unless I'm really rushing at the end with uh, prayer in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary. Full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now the hour of our death. Amen. St. Peter, pray for us. The Lord be with you, and with your spirit. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. You can listen again to this or any other episode of Let's Talk Catholic at our blog, Let's Talk Catholic Podcast.blogspot.com, or you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or almost any other podcast provider.